It's the uh, season of surprises, surprising gifts, surprising changes to our calendar. It's been your hope that in the new year, the weekend would be Saturday or Sunday. Surprise. You live in maybe one of the few countries on the planet that can announce that on a random Tuesday afternoon, three weeks before the new year starts. Surprises by nature are what we don't expect. Some of us are surprised to find love. Some of us are surprised by betrayal. Nations are surprised by other nations in war. Some of us are surprised when we get a raise. Surprises take a lot of forms, good ones and bad Have you ever been surprised by God? If you're a Christian, you know what it is to be surprised by God's grace for you in Jesus Christ. If God really is God, it shouldn't surprise us that He might surprise us. A God who in any significant way isn't surprising really is just a God of our own imagination, a God we might make up. This morning we see together the surprising ways and the surprising salvation of God from Isaiah 49, the first 13 verses. This is the second servant song of Isaiah, a prophet who prophesied about 700 years before the birth of of Jesus. You may remember last week we talked about these songs as if Isaiah were painting a picture that over time more fully emerges. This book gives us some very descriptive images of the coming Messiah that would only come into full clarity once the Messiah, Jesus, actually came onto the scene. He would suffer God's penalty for sin. Jesus is called the servant in these songs. But at this point, God's people didn't have the full picture yet. As we look at this text this morning, I want you to see more of Isaiah's brushstrokes about Jesus. Here's the main point this morning. For God's sinful people, For God's sinful people, the Lord's servant will win a surprising salvation. For God's sinful people, the Lord's servant will win a surprising salvation through a surprising mission. A surprising salvation through a surprising mission for God's sinful people people. We're going to see this through two points. One, God's, or I'm sorry, the servant's surprising mission. That's the first point, the servant's surprising mission. And secondly, the servant's surprising salvation. So surprising mission, surprising salvation. Let's see first, and if you've got a copy of the scriptures, you'll want to follow along. Let's see the servant's surprising mission. The first six verses of Isaiah 49. 
the servant's surprising mission. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here, the servant speaks and he demands an an audience. Listen to me, you coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. He is speaking to the nations. The servant here is speaking to the world. And that in and of itself is surprising. Even as you read the prophets, it's rare, if ever, that the prophets address the world. So why would this servant presume he can command the attention of the world. Remember, at this point in their history, God's people were overtaken. They were overpowered by the powers of the world. And what is it that the servant demands that the world listen to him and know? First, how personal his relationship with the covenant Lord, with Yahweh, is, and how personal his mission is. Notice when he's locating his calling, it's from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. It's so surprising. It's not even the main point. But we can't miss how seen, how precious life in the womb is to the Lord. From this servant, the Messiah, Jesus the prophet Jeremiah, who is consecrated as a prophet in the womb, to John the Baptist, the Lord does some of his most important work in the womb. We live in a world where much of the world preys on the weakness of the womb. Notice the sovereign God does not. He's doing massively important work in the womb. And the servant makes clear how personally the Lord knew him and formed him there in that secret, an unseen place. Notice how clear he makes it that he was prepared there, even while he was hidden 
Look at the end of verse two. The Lord hid him in the shadow of his hand. In his quiver, he hid me away. So from being called to name to being prepared, the Lord prepares the servant while the world can't see him. While he's unseen. While his mission is yet to form. Here's God's sinful people so taken with human power. And God here paints these surprising brushstrokes of how he clearly works in weakness. And what did the Lord do in that place to form and to prepare the servant? Verse two, he, he made his mouth like a sharp sword. Now, if you'd been reading this prophecy to this point, you would have been introduced to another servant, Cyrus, whom the Lord calls, whom the Lord names, the ruler of Persia. The Lord will use him ultimately to deliver his people. But how will Cyrus deliver God's people? Unsurprisingly, by human strength and power. He'll use the power of the sword to conquer the nations. The servant declares he will use the sword of his mouth. In this world of lies, the servant will declare the truth. And surprisingly, the truth he speaks will wonderfully win the world, subdue the nations. Verse 3, the Lord says to him, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The servant will glorify the Lord, but the Lord makes clear he will be glorified in the servant So it's here that we begin to see that this servant, the individual, will do what Israel, the nation, did not. This servant will be the embodiment, the idealized version of Israel. And as the one who is called to embody and to fulfill the the calling of the nation, he must call his fellow Israelites back to the covenant Lord. But that won't be easy. You might even say, because the servant says there in verse 4, it will appear to be in vain. Now I want you to notice the tension here in verses 3 and 4. The servant recognizes his high calling, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified, and then Clearly, this low place from which the servant speaks in verse 4. I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. So according to sight, strangely, surprisingly, it will look as if the ministry of the servant has failed. That it's in vain. The servant gives himself for nothing. Again, we see how mysterious are the ways of the Lord. But unlike his people, he will look beyond what he sees. He'll look to the unseen. The servant will not put his trust in earthly prospects or assessments of success. 
He is going to see beyond mere human appearances. He will see and trust the unseen Lord. So when worldly prospects are bleak and his ministry appears to be in vain, what does the servant declare? Verse 4, surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God. What's he saying? Despite all human appearances, the servant will trust the outcome with the Lord. I will look beyond the veil of this world, this world of appearances, to the God who named me and knew me and called me before anyone in this world ever did. So if we're thinking about the analogy of the painter, here's where the the readers would have scratched their heads in confusion. The one to save the world will appear weak. His mission will appear to have, have failed. And the servant is saying that he understands his mission is given to him from God and the success of it is totally dependent upon God. Here is the servant displaying an otherworldly kind of faith that his own people have failed again and again to display. What will appear to be human weakness will be the epitome of human failure and the servant will trust and entrust himself and the reward to God. Brothers and sisters, we should see clearly worldly appearances and measures of success are so deceiving. Do not measure success ultimately by what you see. This servant's ministry will appear to be in vain, a total failure by human calculations. Of course, the opposite is true. Some people, even ministries, appear successful by human standards. They have numbers, they have money, they have crowds, none of which are bad in and of themselves, but it's the Lord whose economy is so different from this world's who determines success. The Lord determines what will last. The Lord determines what will not last. You should ask yourself, what are you measuring your own success by? Does that success add up? according to all the values of this world. Or when your life comes to an end, will all of that come to its end? As Christians, we live our lives in such a way that everything will not add up on this side of death. That is part of the foolishness we're called to in Jesus Christ. So as those who have taken up our cross, we cannot expect that the balance sheet will be equal or even positive this side of the grave. So that means to follow Jesus, we will give away our time, we'll give away talents, we'll give away money, and we won't necessarily see the return. It means we'll pour into people, even people in our church, only to have to say goodbye to them again. It means we'll pray because we're confident that time and talent and treasure is not enough in this world that God reigns over. 
And it also means that when you come to your final day, you can do so confident that the Lord can and will do more with your ordinary faith-fueled labors, even when it appeared to be a failure. Isn't that what the servant's trust was like? He appeared to spend his strength for nothing, but he was entrusting the reward to the Lord. And the Lord does not fail his servant. It may have appeared to be in vain, but the Lord confirms his trust is not. Verse 5. Again, he is identified by his womb-empowering work. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back, that Israel might be gathered. So gathering his own people was of great priority for the servant. It was the visible evidence that he was truly honored by the Lord. And as the servant songs develop, remember, the painting is becoming clearer. The servant is identified with Israel, and he's distinct from Israel. And while gathering his own people was a priority, his mission, his ministry, surprisingly, would reach farther. So this servant, whose mission appeared to be all for naught, Look at the surprising declaration of the Lord in verse 6. To raise up the tribes of Israel and bring back the preserved of Israel is too light a thing. Now, think about that. That's too light? The tribes of Israel, when they read this, were under the power of the world's superpower. That's too light. Just to bring them back would require extraordinary power. And yet at this moment, when the people's weakness was most visible to the world, they're in exile, the Lord reveals worldwide ambition. So this is like the owner of a League Two team in English football or some other sports franchise that's in the D-League announcing to the world his plans to win the Champions League or the World Cup. It's absurd if it's not true. But the Lord doesn't hesitate. He will make this servant a light for the nations. That my salvation might reach to the end of the earth. So strangely, what appears to be human failure somehow will result in a worldwide salvation. What begins in the womb reaches the world. Listen to me, O coastland, give attention to you people from afar. The servant calls for that worldwide audience because the servant will achieve a worldwide salvation. God makes clear the servant will not fail in this mission. From the cradle to the cross, the Lord will attend to this mission of weakness with his power. I wonder how highly you think of God's power. I think one way you can assess that is to think about your goals in life. Could you accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish 
simply by human strength or human treasure? Or does what you want to see happen through your life depend completely on the power of God? The servant's mission did completely. He was totally trusting the Lord would work in human weakness. That's what gospel ministry must look like. That's what a life spent, rooted in the gospel looks like. Many of you are here for ministry. Are you satisfied that even if there's no visible fruit that you desire, you can entrust that to the Lord? That the Lord can do far more with weakness, take it much farther than you can fathom. I'm so personally thankful that decades ago in this country, there were faithful Christians who took that long view. They labored faithfully in people not yet born, for people not yet born, and we will rejoice with them in eternity. Friends, our trust in God's power means that we see through the illusions of human power. We labor by God's means and God's ways because we trust this is how the Lord is glorified to bring about his ends. It was only by the cross that God purposed to bring about resurrection. So we hold tight to the weakness and the foolishness of the cross, to the sufficiency of God's word, to his ordinary means of grace because we trust in the power of God. What else is clear here? The Lord delights to work in human weakness. It's obvious. The Lord delights to work in weakness. Weakness is the way. In salvation, the sovereign Lord is pleased to work an end of the earth reaching salvation through weakness. So surprising. Our God particularly glories to exalt himself in weakness. This song to the world begins not with the roar of a conqueror, but with the speech of a baby. And then without hesitation and embarrassment, servant works in weakness. Friends, we're not saved by human power. We are the people who cling to, who hold out the cross. God has delighted to save this world that is so filled with pride through obvious weakness. If you're not a Christian, ask yourself what you think will save you. Or ask yourself what it is that impresses you. What's so different about Christianity is that it tells you from the beginning you must give up completely on human strength. All of it. You have to wonderfully see yourself for the weak creature that you are and see Christ's cross for the power that it is. And in God's surprising economy, this is how you're made strong The servant's salvation surprisingly goes forward in power, but his own assessment of it was that he labored in vain. Weakness is the way in salvation. 
And weakness is the way in the Christian life. Across all of our cultures, I think some of the most inspiring, chill-inducing moments are those video clips of, of runners on a track in a massive race that during that race suffer a, a major cramp or some injury, and they can't continue on their own until the end. And we've seen these clips of, a, of another runner maybe stopping, helping them along, or there's one I've seen where the dad jumps out of the stands, and he runs to his son to get him across the finish line. And we all watch that runner totally dependent on the help of another, make it across that finish line, and every single one of us knows it's beautiful. We know it's human because we know we are dependent beings. Christian life is a dependent life. Are you living your Christian life on an island? Or are you obviously dependent upon other people? Practically, do you stay on the margins here? Sneak in and out each week? Or do other people know you? Can they wonderfully press into your life? See, we're, we're all in this race together. We're in Christ and we're, we're clinging to each other to help each other to get across the finish line. And what does the cross do? It, it wonderfully frees us to receive encouragement from each other, to give encouragement because we're not competing. We're all going to the same goal. Christian life is lived beneath the cross. The cross is the way. Weakness is the way. We're called to take up our cross. Surprisingly, the servant shows us weakness is the way in salvation and in the Christian life. But in the hands of the Lord, weakness ends in surprising strength. The servant's surprising mission. Secondly, I want us to see the servant's surprising salvation. Salvation. Verses 7 through 13. Look down at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. Shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. 
who, who among us doesn't love the Cinderella story, story of the despised servant girl who remarkably ends up through marriage royalty. It's a total surprising reversal. We love it because somewhere deep down in all of us, we want that story to be true. Here's another surprise. Two declarations from the Lord. First, verse 7, the Lord guarantees his servant success by identifying himself as the Redeemer. But it's in a way we don't expect. Verse 7, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. What does the prophet Isaiah mean? Somehow, this servant, as he paints this picture, he's showing us will know rejection, terrible rejection. Somehow, this one who will be the light to the nations will be rejected by the nations, despised by them. This may be his plight. It won't be his destiny. His, his life on a wholly different level from Cinderella undergoes a reversal. In verse 1, he goes from being despised, poured, revered. Kings rising toward him. Princes prostrating. Why? Because of the Lord. The Holy One has chosen him. The Lord guarantees his success. Somehow rejected, somehow raised up to be the revered one by kings. Somehow kings will see that in this servant and in his power, there's a demonstration of authority unlike they've ever known or manipulated. A surprising salvation through a surprising reversal. And he will deliver. He will be a savior for his people. Remember who Isaiah's original audience would have been. Displaced, exiled Israelites who wanted so badly to go back to their homeland. And in verse 8, the prophet begins to give extraordinary hope. The Lord speaks to the servant. The servant's prayers are answered. A day of salvation is coming. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 quotes this very verse to say to the Corinthians, the day of salvation in Jesus has come. But at this point, it's, it's all off in the future. Again, God reveals he will give the servant as a covenant for the people. They who have broken covenant are given the solution to their problem. One who embodies Israel will keep the covenant for them. And notice what the Lord promises at the end of verse 8. He will establish the land and apportion desolate heritage. And then verse 9 says to the prisoners, come out. Those in darkness appear. This message is for exiled Israelites. It speaks to their return from the exile when they would reenter the land, when they would receive again the inheritance of the Lord. They are the prisoners in a foreign land whom by the voice of the Lord would be commanded to come out. So here, their physical liberation from exile cannot be separated from the spiritual salvation that God was preparing 
and that when they were finally freed from exile and would enter the land would be a taste of the salvation that was coming. Notice how Isaiah describes their deliverance there at the end of verse 9. They feed along the way. Bare heights become their pasture. What is bare, has no food, becomes a pasture full of food. And what is more, God's liberated people there in verse 10, they do not hunger. They do not thirst. So through the work of the servant, the Lord provides their physical needs. And then there's no sun or scorching wind to strike them. And through the work of the servant, the Lord protects them from physical elements. But why? Verse 10, for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Read that again. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by spring of water will guide them. How good is our God? How compassionate is our God? The very God whom is abandoned by his people will not abandon his people. God will not let go of his people. Can you imagine the hope that that would have given a confused, exiled Israelite centuries ago? I hope it gives you something of that kind of hope now. This is the character of the Lord. This is the heart of the servant from chaos. He leads his people to calm. He leads his people compassionately to places that are pleasant. Isaiah is painting for us a picture of another exodus. The servant will bring about liberation from physical exile is a picture of liberation from spiritual exile. Just as the Lord miraculously delivered his people when they were in Egypt, so he will miraculously deliver them again from Babylon. But this is ultimately about something much bigger than one nation and one people. The servant's work will include the whole world. The song builds, verse 11, God will transform the physical domain. I will make my mountains a road. My highways shall be raised up. The Lord is going to upend the physical landscape of the world to bring about his people's deliverance. And if he will do this, will he not also through the servant transform the world to bring about his people's ultimate salvation? Because surprisingly, the servant's salvation reaches the world. Look at verse 12. It's as if the whole world is streaming into the city and the place God has prepared from afar, north and west, from the land of Syene. Maybe that's in Egypt. The point is the servant will bring about a worldwide salvation. It's not just surprising in its reach, The nations are streaming toward the people of God, not to conquer them, but in peace because of the servant. It's also surprising how it comes about. Despise, hoard, 
rejected by the nations to winning the nations. From this surprising salvation, we are meant to see God does not work according to human wisdom. What does this mean? Well, God, the Lord, reveals to his sinful, exiled people, not a conqueror, but a servant who conquers in surprising ways. What's this temptation for us? I know in my own heart, the temptation is to be impressive on this world's terms. It's a temptation to remove the sting of the gospel, the offense of the gospel, the foolishness of the gospel. But the Lord was pleased for the servant first to be rejected and thought foolish before he was honored. So as a church, we are committed to holding out the despised servant because this is the wisdom of the Lord. If you think about your own life, do you shy away what God does not shy away from? Are you embarrassed of what the Lord is not embarrassed about? Don't think that you and I are wiser than God. That undermines the cross and the gospel. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian. I would hope that you are seeing that the surprising salvation of the servant is actually meeting the world in its deepest need. Isaiah is describing here by the power of the Spirit, the one who will ultimately be revealed to be, surprisingly, God the Son in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who was mysteriously born into this world in what appeared to be weakness, but was actually the power of God. Uniquely, he was born of a virgin. Why? That he could represent us and stand apart from us, not stained by the sin of Adam that we've all inherited. In his life, he obeyed God perfectly, which we've not done, and he was rejected fully all the way to his death on the cross. It's at the cross that God not just demonstrates his love for the world, but that the the Messiah, Jesus, accomplished this salvation that the servant points to. And he rose from the dead. Death, which has been our great enemy, was defeated by him as he was raised and proved the penalty of sin and death had been paid. And some of you heard that a lot of times. Some of you just heard it for the first time. And the question is, will you turn from your wisdom? Will you come to Christ by faith? And trust him for the salvation he alone has won and he alone can give. I was interacting with a friend earlier this week who was telling me how he was trying to do better so that he could be right with God. Friends, the gospel rejects that. The cross is God's no to human pride and human works. Come trust in Christ the servant. He frees you to admit you're weak and to find strength that will last forever in him. Brothers and sisters, God's sovereign power is on display here. 
Look what he does. He reverses the destiny of the servant. He liberates his people. He transforms the physical world. He changes the destiny of nations. If you're not careful, slowly be taken with the powerful things that you see and you can lose sight of the sovereign, omnipotent God you cannot see. What shapes your view of God this morning? The world or the word? Be careful. What you see can slowly overpower what you read in the word. This text is meant to readjust your sight to see God's power. If you're a Christian and you've lost sight of God or confidence in God, I would just encourage you practically to start bringing to your mind what is it that is in your mind more powerful than God? What are you trusting? What is it? Think of it in your mind. Now hold that up with this God who will bring his salvation to the world, who will transform the world. You have to notice here, God's not hedging his bets. He's putting himself on record. He declares his salvation will reach the nations. I wonder about those of you who are younger. Maybe you're a student. What are you impressed with? What impresses you? Are you embarrassed of God? Are you bored with God? If you were seeing rightly, you would see like we all should see. God should be embarrassed of us. We're the ones he would find boring. Challenge you at your young age. Know God. Strive to know him. You're giving your time and attention and energy to studying, to activities. What kind of attention and effort are you giving to knowing God? At your age, live for eternity and the glory of God unashamedly. Brothers and sisters, did you see the glory of Christ here? Christ willingly left the glories of heaven for rejection and weakness we can't fathom. Christ may have submitted himself to weakness, but he is not weak. Kings will give their due to him. We lift Christ high in our lives by taking the low road of service. You testify to Christ as you even know rejection for his name. Be sure you're on the right road, not the wrong one. This is the only road. This is the road of the cross. Notice where all of this is going. Verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The song begins with a summons to a worldwide audience and it ends in worldwide worship. The entire universe is caught up in this. Heaven and earth, the mountains, because the sovereign Lord will comfort and have compassion on his people. You know what's remarkable? From Isaiah to Revelation, God's people are his central concern. His eye and his work is on and for his people. This world tells us we're on the margins. We're irrelevant. The scriptures tell us something totally different. Whose word will you trust? You may love surprises. You may despise surprises. But with the triune God, 
to know him is to be surprised by him. For it means that in Christ, we know he's treated us far better than we deserve. His worldwide salvation begins in the weakness of a baby. And it spreads as the weakness of the cross is proclaimed across this powerful world. And you know what else? With our God, we can be sure that the best is surprisingly what is still to come. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at who you are and the ways that you surprisingly work in the world. We pray this morning that you would change our hearts and our sight, that we would not live according to human wisdom or power, but embrace the weakness and foolishness of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.